Welcome to Start, Scale, Sustain, a story-driven podcast for nonprofit leaders and entrepreneurs. I'm your producer, Molly Heacock, and I'm here today with co-founder and CEO of Care for AIDS, Justin Miller. Thanks, Molly. Today, we actually have a couple special guests in the studio with us, some guys that I have known for about 11 years and who have shaped my life in ways that uh, I wouldn't have even imagined when I met them. These two guys are the other co-founders of Care for AIDS. Their names are Cornell Onyango and Duncan Kimani. And these guys are my co-leaders, but they're also like brothers to me. And they have taught me a lot about leadership, about Africa, uh, about uh, being a husband, being a father, um, and everything that they do so well. And I think we are going to be in for a great episode today, listening to them talk about what it's like working with me and all the challenges that brings and, uh, and what it's like trying to, to do something cross-culturally. Tell us a little bit about how cross-cultural leadership has really shaped care for AIDS from the beginning, even on through the past 10 years. What has been the biggest thing that you've learned when co-leading with these guys from Kenya? Well, Molly, when I first started Care for AIDS, the, the intent of our first trip to Kenya was to go and to learn about what was happening on the ground there. And we may have had some uh, preconceptions about what was happening and what the right answer might have been, but really our desire was to go and learn for ourselves what was happening on the ground and not just assume that we had all the answers um, of what could be done. And when we went there, we got connected to these two brothers of mine, Cornell and Duncan. We've been working together now for 10 years and they were assigned to us basically as tour guides to help us navigate the the cultural nuances of being there in Kenya. And we quickly learned after a, um, our time together that these guys had a common vision for what we wanted to do with HIV and AIDS. And I think everything that has been accomplished today through this organization could not have been done without the right kind of national leaders on the ground doing the work. And I would challenge anyone who's looking to start an organization, especially one across cultures, that they try to identify men and women who are already trying to do the, that work or solve those problems. And whether or not it ends up being a partnership, at the very least, we need to learn from their successes, learn from their failures, understand how we can go in and not be paternalistic or um, just imposing Western ideas and thoughts onto a culture that may not operate in the same way that we do. And so Cornell and Duncan were a godsend to our organization because they had obviously grown up in Kenya. They had experienced HIV from a young age and they knew the areas of the culture that they needed to be sensitive to, how we could engage with this issue in a way that would empower people and not create entitlement. And I just have had the blessing to work with them for all these years and have leaned heavily on their cultural knowledge and understanding instead of trying to just take what someone from Atlanta, Georgia might think would be the best response to the situation. So this morning, I just want to take an opportunity to hear from these guys who are here in Atlanta, Georgia right now, all the way from Kenya. Um, and I just want to hear from you guys a little bit about your story growing up and how that informed your understanding of HIV and AIDS. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about how can you as listeners be able to um, leverage this cross-cultural dynamic, but also understand what are some of the pitfalls that might derail this kind of relationship in the future. So 
let me start with uh, my brother Cornell here. Cornell, tell us a little bit about your background and specifically how you saw HIV play out in your family and in your community and how that shaped your view of the response to HIV. Thank you so much, Justin. Um, I grew up uh, in the western region part of uh, our country, Kenya, uh, near a small city called Kisumu. So growing up, HIV AIDS was a big deal. and That's number one killer in my community, even as we speak right now. Um, I come from a culture whereby uh, wife inheritance, polygamy is still widely practiced. So with that kind of background, I saw a lot of uh, deaths that were happening every now and again as a result of HIV AIDS. And because of the stigma around HIV AIDS, it was very hard to talk about it. So no one could address it, like uh, face it head on and just deal with it. So this is what I grew up seeing, homes closed. And you know, African, we have big homes, so sometimes more than five children. And suddenly the parents are all dead. And then the children are left alone, find themselves in the streets or in the orphanage or some live with elderly parents who are not able to take them to school or educate them. So. And with this kind of background, um, I was kind of struggling. The one that really struck me more than any other. So I thought like HIV is out there. I saw it with people. I even lost my best friend to HIV. And then begin, uh, I was thinking, yes, it is, it is practical, but it is out there. Until one day, um, my mom called me. And I think my mom... At this point, my mom had been sickling for a long time, all the time, sick, malaria, typhoid, pneumonia. Like It's like a circle. Malaria is off, pneumonia is on. When pneumonia is off, TB is back. So it's just like that. So I remember in our culture, again, you have to be responsible because my mom was not working. So as the only elder child who was working, so you have to do everything you can to restore your mom. So my mom called me one day, and this time she'd been battling this sickness, which I did not know for over one month. But when she called me, my mom was on a deathbed and almost dying. So she called me, and the words that she told me, I've never forgotten until today. My mom confessed to me for the first time that all these days and years, she's been battling HIV AIDS. And there's the stigma around it. She will not talk about it. And the first person uh, she's uh, sharing this with was now me. And I think that that overwhelmed me. So I gathered courage and told mom, you are not going to die. Let's fight this together. I am in. So that's what, um, um, I don't know where the words came from, but within that time, I started now supporting my mother fully than ever before. What I did was to make sure she get her medication. Not only the medication, I also made sure that my mom is having a proper balanced diet daily. And apart from that, I made it a point on me to spend time with my mom, just to give my mom comfort and friendship and just fellowship every night. And I remember us almost reading the Bible every night. Believe me or not, within a short time, my mother started responding. In less than one month, my mom, who had not been out of bed for over one month, my mom got out of bed and she started doing her chores in the house. 
And then what I did quickly to restore completely was to get a a, 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 a business. So I, I had a small capital and then I saved this capital and just gave my mom to start a small fish business in our city Kisumu so that my mom could get out of the house, go to the market, sell fish so that she can look forward to her business. My mom got well. And as we speak right now, my mom is doing extremely well. She's perfectly in good health, taking her medication and uh, she's living a normal life. She will live normal life like any other person. But if my mom would have passed on, what I knew what she wanted me to do is to take over and begin taking care of my younger brothers and sisters. And culturally, that's what you do. When your parents are not there, now you, you the elder son take over. So that's what she was expecting me to do. So uh, because my mom lived, um, my uh, she was able to take care of my younger brothers and sisters. And then I went on doing my businesses and uh, going back to college. But unfortunately, my father passed on because of HIV AIDS. He could not come up. But that is the story that um, I live to tell that uh, uh, because my mom lived, um, my brothers and sisters uh, had, a, had a parent living with them. And that is the goal that I said, I can replicate this to other parents who are dying without intervention because we don't have uh, many sons and daughters who are able to come to their parents' rescue. Justin. Thank you, Cornell. I'm so thankful for that story because one, your mom is now alive and it's been 14 years since she was on her deathbed and she's still alive and well today. But I just imagine my own story and how different it would be without you in it. And I think had she passed on, you would have had to return back to the village. You would have cared for your younger siblings and our stories would have never intersected. And that would have been a great loss for my life. But I think it would also have been a great loss for Kenya because of the great organization that you and Duncan have led all these years. So obviously your experience informed one perspective of HIV that's very unique and seeing the importance of parents and how, you know, with a mom present or a father present, it changes the whole trajectory of a family. Duncan, tell us about your story. You kind of experienced this whole phenomenon from a different direction, but it kind of led you to the same place uh, as Cornell, but in a different way. Tell us a little about your story. Thank you, Justin. And this takes me back to a time when I was doing um, some mission work, local mission work in um, you know Nairobi, and we were in the slums, and um, you know with a group of missionaries, and um, we're moving from door to door as we got to share the gospel, and uh, it, it takes me to remind me a time where we would gather together every morning and move from house to house uh, as we share the gospel. And all these children would gather around us and follow us the whole day. And at that point, there was this little one boy who was, um, you know, we noticed that he would follow us every day, you know, wherever we were, wherever we went. And everybody kept wondering, like, who does this child belong to? And uh, we kept on asking questions to the point where one of the missionaries who was with us, you know, she was really passionate to want to know more about this boy. And um, that's kind of like what drew me towards knowing the story of George. George was five years old, all by himself in the streets of Nairobi. And, you know, uh, we could tell, you know, something was not right. Because this is a five-year-old boy, you know, walking around the streets and he had no care. So I decided to know his story. 
And uh, when I got George and talked to him, I realized that the parents had died and he was all by himself in the streets. And that is kind of like what broke my heart to, to see that there are many children in the slums whose parents die and they are left on their own and nobody really cares. And the biggest part for me was even the church was not addressing this issue. And I kept asking myself, how many other children, you know, whose parents are dying every day and they are left without care? And that is kind of like what brought the passion in me to start caring for men and women so that they can live long and be able to take care of their children. George today is 21 years old and he's doing very well. And we thank God that we were able to intervene in his life. And even as we do that, we are also concerned about many other children whom we are continuing to work with their parents so that they can live a better life. Thank you, Duncan. And one part of George's story that is so amazing is that, um, that he was HIV positive. And that was discovered after you had adopted him. And he had been most likely infected at birth. And it was really a miracle that he had survived to that time without really a lot of care and attention. But thanks to your adoption of him, you, you know, you were able to provide him with the right uh, care. And, and now, like you said, he's 21 years old and he's doing really, really well. And what Duncan won't say is that he's also taken in six other children um, who had been orphaned by HIV and AIDS. And um, that's just part of, of his compassionate heart for this crisis. But he also understands, um, like Cornell did, that we can't solve this HIV crisis just by adopting all of the orphans, but we actually need to work on how we are preventing these children from becoming orphans in the first place. So Duncan, thank you for, for sharing your story. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Well, over the past 10 years, I've leaned heavily on these guys to help me understand and interpret what's happening in Kenya and how we can best respond to that. And so when we first created the program, that we run today, we designed it based on the experience that Cornell had with his mom. And we designed a program that would take people in their time of, of great crisis and provide all these different interventions that Cornell did for his mom to see people revived and restored. And we've seen that happen now more than 10,000 times. But over the past 10 years, I would not have had nearly the awareness and understanding to be able to engage in a culture like Kenya that's so different. But it wasn't just in the design of the program where we worked on these cultural differences, but every single day we have to constantly battle the, the, the cultural differences that exist in the way that we communicate, in the way that we lead. And the three of us have operated as a kind of a co-leadership team for the past 10 years, which can present so many challenges, but I never want to be heavy handed in my leadership and say, Hey, this is the way that it has to be because, you know, I'm the American or I'm sending the money. Like that's just not the right way to build an effective organization. And so we've had to work through the challenges of, of what are the differences and how do we overcome those? And I just want to share a couple things and some best practices that I think would be relevant to you all listening today. Um, especially if you're working across cultures, but even in your workplace in the United States, I think these are some important things to remember. First of all, I would say you have to establish trust with the people that you're working with. And Cornell and Duncan are men of the highest character. And you don't always find 
men or women of, of such character, but Cornell and Duncan have never given me any reason not to trust them. And so I need to be willing to trust them, even though I don't understand their culture all the time. Um, even in the early days, I didn't know them as well as I do today. But in order for us to have a relationship that can that has built care phrase to where it is today, it had to be based on trust. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you start with a little bit of trust and that builds and builds over, builds over time as more trust is earned. And I think it's the relationship that we have and the trust we have for each other that allows us to operate so effectively. And that's, that's really where these relationships have to start. But once you've established that trust, the next piece is you, you really have to clarify roles. And that's what's so beautiful about the relationship with Cornell and Duncan is that we have three very distinct personalities and gift sets. And so we really complement each other really well. Um, we understand that, you know, Duncan is going to help us think through how things are going to work operationally and really make sure things are running like a well-oiled machine. We know that Cornell is going to be able to, to cast vision and build culture uh, unlike anyone I've ever met and people um, rally behind him because he's so inspiring. And part of my responsibility is to, to tell the story so that others will join in and partner with us uh, financially for this work. And so understanding what we each bring to the team is really, really important. Um, and then the other part of that, which kind of goes in hand in hand with the roles is the expectation piece, knowing that even though this is the role that you're filling, you know, what are we expecting you to accomplish and defining that very clearly and then holding each other to account for that is, is really important. Otherwise you might feel that someone is, is not pulling their weight and may, it might be because you just didn't explicitly say this is what is expected of you. And so those are a few things that we've learned, but there's also some tricks to the whole communication piece uh, cross-culturally. Um, there's something that people talk about with uh, being a high context culture versus a low context culture. And some cultures like Kenya, they have such a shared history and a shared culture that they, a lot of communication is implied and they don't have to communicate as explicitly as we do in the U.S. And in the U.S., we have to share a lot of details because we're communicating across uh, a lot of different geographies, a lot of different races and we need to be very explicit in our communication. So I think there's been times when we've, we've wrestled with that balance of, you know, how much is too much. I don't want them to feel like I'm being demeaning or patronizing to them because I'm over communicating. But sometimes uh, if they make assumptions, we might result in a, an outcome that's very different than what I expected. I remember one time Cornell, um, you remember we were in Kasumu and, I think what I communicated to you was that I wanted a hotel in Kasumi and I wanted you to be very frugal in your choice because we were, you know, we were still a young ministry and I wanted to uh, make sure that we were good stewards of the money that we had. So you put us up in the fine establishment called the dream house. There wasn't a lot of dreaming going on that night because it was, um, one of the places I've, maybe feared for my life the most. So we were, I think we, Cornell spent all about $9 on this hotel room in Kasumu. And it's one of those places where you just, you lay on top of the, the covers fully dressed because you, you're afraid to get inside the bed. And you know, you're afraid that any minute someone's going to bust through your door. And, and then about three o'clock in the morning, 
the church that was right outside of the hotel started off in full voice worship, um, you know, waking everybody up in the hotel. And it was just, and we got it to breakfast the next morning and I enjoyed one of the most chalky pieces of yam that I've ever had. It was the worst breakfast ever. We got to the next morning and I said, Cornell, this is, uh, I, I appreciated your stewardship. I appreciated your frugality, but, uh, I, I didn't quite make myself clear. I wanted a place where uh, a guy that's soft as I am from Atlanta. I need a little bit more comfort uh, than what the dream house afforded us. So there have been those times where, you know, I did not know that you're coming from Peachtree and what you see uh, saving money means. So to you, that may be a three star, three star hotel. To me, that would mean we go somewhere in the ghetto and find a room. So that's exactly what I did. Well, it was an experience and I'm thankful that I lived to tell about the the dream house. Um, But it is, you know, that was just one of those fun examples of times when I uh, under communicated, assuming that they understood a little bit of what my expectations were and they weren't made clear. Um, But there's other times in our story that have been a little bit more serious. Um, We had a season of our organization where we didn't open up any new projects in Kenya for a period of about 18 months, which proved to be a very um, challenging time for Cornell and Duncan's leadership. The team was kind of looking to them to say, hey, what's, you know, what's happening? Is the organization okay? Are we in good health? Are we, you know, in a financial crisis? And I was in the U.S., uh, basically a team of one at that time, and I was trying to keep the organization afloat, trying to raise money to help us cover the expenses of our 14 centers we had, but also help us to grow. And I wasn't really communicating with Cornell and Duncan at that time very well, because I didn't have much to say. I was kind of discouraged. I was a little bit embarrassed. And I think Cornell and Duncan got a little frustrated with me about not exactly knowing what was going on. And they were, you know, creating all kinds of scenarios in their mind. And they were also starting to give way to worry about the future of the organization. And, and we learned during that season that, that it was so important that we got around a table and we talked openly about the challenges that we were having and, um, and, and the struggles that we were going through. And so as far as communication goes, it is hard when you're working from a high context to a low context culture, but I think it's important that we always default to the culture that, communicates the most explicitly. And I think it has to be made clear up front that, Hey, just because we're going to be over communicating, that doesn't mean that we, that I think you're, you're not smart or you can't figure things out for yourself, but it's important that we're all on the same page. And so we need to make it a priority to over communicate uh, on everything that we do. And I think the way that we've, you know, now that we've done that both by phone and by Skype and by email, I think as a leadership team, we always feel much more connected and informed about um, what's going on in Kenya versus in the U.S. So it has been a joy to work with two guys that I feel like I have as much chemistry and just cohesion with as a team, but we've had to work really, really hard to to overcome the cultural barriers that could impede the, tra- the kind of work that we're trying to do together. That's incredible, Justin. It, it's so important, like you said, to create and maintain those cross-cultural co-leadership relationships, not just in the beginning of an organization, but throughout the entire lifespan of an organization, all throughout those start, scale, and sustain phases. So my question to you, Justin, um, as we finish out today's episode, 
is for our listeners, whether they're leading in a cross-cultural context or locally, what is the big takeaway that you can give them? You know, I think, I think it's best said in a way that I wasn't the one to say it first like this, but it's been said many times before, you know, don't do for someone what they can do for themselves. And I think we as Americans probably are the most guilty of thinking that we have, we have the best ideas, um, because of our experience, because of our culture, because of our, you know, context and our resources, we tend to think that we have, um, some special gifts, um, that allow us to have better judgment in places where we're trying to affect change. And the truth is, is that there have been times where I think I have spoken from my experience and added value to a conversation in what's happening in Kenya. But I always want to defer to the, the local perspective of Cornell and Duncan because they understand so many more dynamics than I ever could. And I think at the end of the day, I just have to live by that saying that has defined, uh, the work that we do for our clients, but also what I do with Cornell and Duncan and not try to do for them what I know that they can do for themselves. And I know that if I am overstepping or trying to micromanage, that's only going to build resentment and undermine the work that we're doing in East Africa. So that would be my advice for everyone here. That's true. Whether you're working in a U.S. workplace, if you're working across continents, across cultures, identifying people's strengths and their gifts and allowing them to lean into those. And at times they may, they might fall short, but that's where you get to give feedback and help them grow, but not trying to do for them what they could do for themselves. Cornell and Duncan, thank you guys so much for being here on the podcast today. I want to ask you guys if you have any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners before we, we wrap for the day. Thank you, Justin. And, um, you know, I would want to say this to our listeners. Um, you know, you came to our country and you saw the situation that we were in. And um, one great thing that we got to experience is the level of trust that you, you know, shown to us and also how you got to invest your time and resources in encouraging us and building us. And one thing we've come to learn over this period of time is um, we are all gifted in different ways and never ever underestimate uh, the power that is in there in different cultures or settings because what we've come to realize is um, even as much as we didn't have the resources, we had the know-how of how to do the work on the ground. And, um, you know, through your support and, you know, um, and, and, and just the belief that you've shown us that we can do it. We've seen so much of our people rise up and, you know, get to the leadership positions we are in today. And um, we're doing it. And um, that is kind of like what exists in every culture where when you believe in the people, and you trust in them and you build on them, you know, you get to see great talents that you'd never have seen if you did not trust in them. And that is something great that we have learned through this process. And thank you for that trust. Cornell, any final remarks? I agree with Duncan. Yeah, for sure. Leaders allow others to make mistakes. And I think through that, we personally have grown so much. You know, I'm older than all of you. 
but I've learned more from you than any other big leaders that I know all over the world because you've given us a tons of opportunity to make our own decision and uh, if we screwed it up you you deal with it so and again I'll keep on to learn because nobody want to repeat the same mistake twice so thank you so much for trusting us that much and um, the other thing I want to say to our listeners uh, I want you to check out our website www.careforaids.org and also those who want to come to Kenya please we highly welcome you come to our country it's so beautiful we 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 will enjoy having you over the other side god bless you all well that wraps up start scale sustain for this season Thank you all so much for listening in each week. It's been such a privilege to be able to talk through the history of Care for AIDS, the leadership lessons we've learned. And uh, if you want more information about Care for AIDS, as Cornell said, you can find us at careforaids.org or on social media at Care for AIDS. If you want to learn more about Justin, read some of his blog and article content. As always, you can find him at justintmiller.com. Thanks so much.